Good evening, you're listening to The Truth Tank, and I am your host, The Tank. This is episode 41 of The Truth Tank. I'm done with bashing Hollywood and the Oscars, and epic reviews on Jurassic World Dominion and Top Gun Maverick. On tonight's episode, we're going to be covering something a little bit more serious, and that is the war between Russia and Ukraine. We're going to be having a look at the background to the conflict, why it happened, why Putin decided to invade Ukraine. We'll also be looking at some of the potential consequences of the conflict and what it might mean on a global scale, as well as a very detailed history of Ukraine. We're then going to be moving on to a very detailed and fun look at the history of communism, how it came about, how it spread, why it spread, how it became popular in Russia, which eventually led to the rise of Stalin and the forming of the Soviet Union, and the very tainted legacy that it has left behind. The truth isn't always what it seems, and in the case of communism, this is definitely true. We'll round out the series by having a look at the annexing of the Crimea. I've been researching this episode since March 7th of this year, which if you listen to this in the future, is 2022. A clusterfuck of a year all around. It is taking me a fucking long time to research it, and I'm still in the process of researching the history of communism, which should be due out in a couple of weeks. The research has taken a lot longer than I thought as I've mentioned before and the history is pretty dense it's a lot of shit to go through and I want to do a very detailed and truthful look at it as I mentioned on the end of the last show the truth tank is now on Instagram it's still in its infancy still learning the ropes and getting the hang of Instagram so if you'd like to support the show give it a follow it'd be much appreciated so this is going to be an epic show so let's not waste any more time let's just get straight into it this is episode 41 of the truth tank Russia vs. Ukraine, History and Backstory, Part 1. So like a lot of you, I was pretty shocked when I saw Russian helicopters flying over the Ukraine, bombing apartment buildings, people's homes, and city centres. Like a lot of you, I was pretty outraged by it. The entire world was outraged by it. The world watched in shock as another war began. We've just finished one war in Iraq and Afghanistan, and now another one begins. It's a little different, obviously, this being a European-centered conflict rather than a Middle Eastern one. So as it stands, Russia invaded Ukraine on the 24th of February, 2022. Just when you thought 2022 was going to be the bright, shining light that was going to overshadow the past two years of utter chaos and bullshit that was 2020 and 2021 with the global pandemic, the lockdowns, closures of business, losses of freedom, vaccinations and all that other shit and the vaxxed against versus the anti-vaxxed. Just when you thought all that was in the past, this happens. Putin decides he's going to declare war on the Ukraine for some completely delusional and bullshit reason. Ukraine is a separate country and always has been. Soviet history aside, it's been its own country for a while now and is not going back. And Can you really blame them? And this is another example of a bully picking on a little guy. The only difference is the little guy is kicking the shit out of the big guy. It's eerily reminiscent of World War II. And just when we thought we've got over one conflict, another one begins. Hopefully this is not going to be a 20-year shit show like the last war but it could have far-reaching consequences. Hopefully not global consequences, but for the immediate future, it doesn't look too good. It's just another 
chaotic event on top of two years of chaos, all perpetuated by one man's ego. While I was doing the research for this show, there was pretty much a new development every week. It seemed the longer the war went on, the more developments were made. It was looking a little bleak for a while, and it's been very hard to write this episode because of the constant changing and updating of the situation. As I'm writing this, Ukraine has the upper hand. They made some very big pushes at restoring freedom throughout their country and pushing the Russians back across the border. So the UN, or as I like to call them, the useless nations. The big question you have to ask with that is why isn't more being done? Are they just waiting for the US to do the dirty work like they usually do? They like the US to pick up the slacks so they can blame them if anything goes wrong. So far, they haven't really done a hell of a lot. They haven't put very many sanctions on Russia, and I know it's a, it's a very complex situation. They have to tread carefully with all parties. But when you think of it, like, why is Russia even in the United Nations? They just veto everything and just cause big problems for everybody. They just disagree with everything that's put forth. So why even have them in there? The world at large has been pretty outraged at what, what's happened and has supported the Ukrainians. So far, there's been a lot of supplies and weapons that have made it through and into the hands of Ukrainian forces. But so far, no one has sent troops in to help at the time of this recording. So it's probably not as easy as just putting boots on the ground and getting troops across the border because if foreign troops enter Ukraine, then that would be more of an act of aggression as seen in the eyes of, the, of, the, of Russia, which could escalate things further. And Putin just loves to threaten and make these big grandiose threats about usually using nuclear weapons and all this other shit. I mean, he's probably full of it, but at the same time, you have to tread carefully with the madman. So let's get down to the background of the war. It kind of looks like Putin is trying to reform the Soviet Union in all its glory. Russia looks to be taking back countries that were once part of the former Soviet Union. The invasion of Ukraine is another military invasion of a ex-Soviet country. And this is nothing new. Russia has been eyeing off the Ukraine for a while. It has been invading countries that were formerly part of the Soviet Union on and off for the better part of 30 years. Pretty much ever since the Soviet Union collapsed in the, was it the early 90s, late 80s. The conflict really began with the annexing of the Crimea in February and March of 2014. A lot of experts speculate that this is Putin's Soviet dream. It's a new reimagined Russian empire, like we've seen over the last 50 to 60 years. The communist threat isn't going away. You've got communist countries such as Russia and China, North Korea on the rise. They're not slowing down and they're not stopping and they're still making the same baseless threats that they always have. He is picking and choosing elements of communism, the Soviet Union and imperialist Russia combining them in this mashup of a, what he sees as, as an empire. He's trying to bring his new imperialistic Russian dream to reality. As we'll get to in part two, communism, like Putin's imperialistic ambitions, are founded on lies. The world's reaction so far has been one in support of the Ukraine. Governments all over the world, as well as celebrities and billionaires such as Elon Musk have pledged their support to the Ukraine and provided them with financial aid and logistic aid. My own views are probably much the same as yours. 
I favor Ukraine. I've never seen the Ukraine as part of Russia. I've always seen Ukraine as its own independent and separate country. And I'm from a generation that doesn't know the Soviet Union. I think I was only pretty young when it collapsed. So the Ukraine, as far as I've known it, has always been the Ukraine. It's always been its own separate thing and never under the control of the Soviet Union. And obviously this goes without saying. Thoughts and prayers to everyone in the Ukraine. Keep fighting the good fight. And we can only hope that you restore freedom and take back your country. And show the bully that sometimes being the biggest and baddest isn't always the best. I mean, we are literally seeing a country fighting for its freedom. Its freedom to exist and to operate independently of a tyrannical, delusional dictator. And this is not a gripe against the people of Russia. There's many good people in Russia. And this is, when I say Russia or Russians, I'm not referring to the people protesting en masse. All the people who aren't in support of the war, I'm referring to the Russian government and Putin's tyrannical regime. So this is the little guy versus the big guy. It's the righteous fight against oppression and tyranny, the right to exist, the right to freedom. I mean, this is obviously a concept that's not new. It's probably one of the biggest fights for a nation's freedom since World War II. Obviously, you know, Iraq is a, is a different story. There's a lot of there's a lot of conspiracy theories around around the Iraq invasion, whether you, you know, you're for them or against them. The conflict we're seeing play out now definitely draws parallels to Vietnam. We're seeing the smaller country, the smaller force, battling a gigantic superpower. It's fighting against a technologically superior enemy, and it's doing it with limited resources, such as lack of planes and a, and a large air force and ships and navy personnel. Russia has the bigger and more technologically advanced force, but that doesn't mean it's the better force. The Ukraine has, has limited resources and is fighting and is fighting with everything it has. It's also a united country. You can't beat a home field advantage and a home team that is united by a common cause, even if you are a bigger, superior force with more firepower. This has played out in Vietnam with a smaller, less technologically sophisticated force, beat the superpowers with unlimited resources. And I'm not saying Russians are bad people at all, or that the Russian army is inherently bad or evil either. There's elements within the Russian army that are fiercely opposed to the war and are refusing to fight and throw down their weapons. A lot of them don't even know what their mission is or that they're even at war. Some of them are even claiming that, quote-unquote, they're on a training exercise... The truth is a hard thing to, to try and decipher now, so you know either, either one of those options could really be true. There are elements in the Russian military that are fiercely opposed to the Ukrainian invasion, and there's elements that are loyal to Putin and all for it. Same goes with the people of Russia. There's a lot of them that are fiercely opposed to it. Look at what's happened in the last couple of weeks with the mass protests all over Russia that spread all throughout the country. Russian leadership is where the blame must lie, and with Putin's decision to start the war in the first place, the real blame all comes down to him. He's been wanting to take over the Ukraine for a while, and he's finally done it. So all the responsibility lies with him. Some Russians don't have a choice. There's a lot of conscripts in the Russian military. And this is something that's played out in the last couple of weeks with Putin conscripting 300,000 men to bolster the ranks of the army. A lot of young people are fleeing Russia in droves and heading for the borders. 
to avoid conscription in Putin's unjust war. They don't want a part of it, and rightfully so. I would probably do the same thing if I was in that situation. A lot of conscripts had no idea they were even in the Ukraine or starting the war. I mean, obviously, it goes without saying, there are elements in the Russian government that are pretty corrupt. This has been like this for a long time. It's part of the governmental culture. Just look at Putin's reign, for example. He wants to rule for life. He's jailed the opposition leader, Alexander Navalny. He's labelled him a terrorist. He's shut down any alternative media. Most of the media you see coming out of Russia is state-sponsored, much like North Korea and China. It's all in favour of his reign. And it's pretty obvious at this point he wants to rule for life. He wants to be the next Tsar and pretty much rule Russia until he drops dead. He wants to bring back this imperialistic dream and he'll stop at nothing to do it. It's a very weird situation. You have some of the Russian Defence Force have no idea what they're doing or even where they are and they don't want to fight. And you have other elements such as the such as Russian Special Forces and military lifers, the diehard Putin supporters and his private army of mercs who want to invade and cause chaos and will do anything to see this imperialistic dream come true. So this brings us down to Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky. If the world needs an example of how to be a leader in difficult times, they should look no further than Volodymyr Zelensky. I think he has done an outstanding job of leading his country. I don't think many people could have predicted what was going to happen. And he has done a pretty incredible job, given the situation he's found himself in. All world leaders should take note. This is how you should lead a country and lead your people. And this is a guy who, up until recently, was a stand-up comedian and an actor. He played a president on TV, and now he's leading his country through some of the toughest times seen since World War II. I mean, he will go down in history as one of the great leaders of the modern day. He should be an example and a role model on how to be an effective modern leader. This is what a leader and a politician should be, and not a corrupt, selfish bag of shit like most global politicians and leaders. He's the comedian who became an actor, the actor who became president, and the president who defied a tyrant. And Zelensky isn't the only one who is leading his country by example and leading it from the front lines. The former opposition leader of Ukraine, Petro Poroshenko, has been helping on the streets. Even though he is the opposition leader and him and his party lost to Zelensky in the election, he has put his people first and not his feelings. He's been helping out on the street. You know, world leaders should definitely take notice of that. I don't think you'd see Trump or Biden do that or any other politician, prime minister or president. He is setting an example when he's leading from the front, even when he's not in office. He's getting his hands dirty. And this is a guy who fought for the Soviet army and has been pro-Russian in the past. And even he thinks Putin is crazy. To get a bit more info on this, I found an article. Yes, it's article time by Michael Vincent on abc.net.au titled Don't Trust Vladimir Putin and Don't Be Afraid of Him, says former Ukraine President Petro Poroshenko. A former president of Ukraine, Petro Poroshenko, has issued a simple warning to the West about the Russian president. Don't trust him. I think that kind of goes without saying. I mean, just look at Putin and he doesn't look like someone you would want to lend milk money to, let alone give nuclear launch codes. Vladimir Putin, and this is a quote from Poroshenko, 
considers himself an emperor, very close to God, untouched by rules, international laws, and normal democratic human values, Mr. Poroshenko told 7.30. And some of the decisions and Putin's behavior lately have pretty much backed that up. He seems to have no regard for human life or how many lives it's going to cost to bring about his Soviet wet dream. He doesn't care about the lives it destroys or the innocent people in the Ukraine that have died or you know being executed by his squad of thugs. He doesn't give a shit. He's threatened nuclear war on the West several times now. Every time he gets cornered and he, his ego is damaged, he threatens either nuclear war or some other form of warfare not yet seen. It's probably your piss and win, but he's a madman. And like Poroshenko said, he considers himself an emperor and very close to God. And with him adjusting the laws of his term, he's basically guaranteed that he's going to serve for life. Which might not be that longer if Russia keeps going the way it is. He's jailed or shut down any opposition to him. Navalny is being labelled a terrorist and had his the opposition party shut down. He's in jail. All because he wants to rule for life and he can't have a challenger to his throne. He's a guy that's got himself into politics and he's just not letting go of it. He, I think his original term was supposed to, to be over in about 2015 or so, but he changed the laws so he can pretty much rule for life. So from 2014 to 2019, Mr. Poroshenko was president of Ukraine and commander-in-chief of its armed forces as it faced its most dire crisis of the post-Soviet era, the Russian invasion and annexation of Crimea, and its support for separatists in eastern Ukraine. In short, he has dealt with Mr. Putin many times. This is a quote. Don't trust Putin. But at the same time, second recommendation, don't be afraid of Putin, he said, as Western leaders threaten to corral Russia's leader against a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Mr. Poroshenko had this request. Please, no concession to the situation. If you give him a finger, he will take the whole arm. It was Russian separatists who were blamed for shooting down MH17, killing 38 Australians. Yeah, the shooting down of MH117 is still a pretty sore issue. It's one that hasn't seen justice for the victims or closure. And the separatists blatantly shot down a commercial airliner, killing everybody on board. Rumours and the conspiracies were that it was designed to kill one or two Russian defectors on the plane. I mean, like, why wouldn't you just try to, I don't know, get them at the airport? Why would you bother shooting down a plane? They claim that they it was over military airspace and they thought it was a an enemy aircraft. Despite the fact that it was flying at 30,000 feet, which is the required flying altitude of commercial airliners. Putin has denied... Any responsibility, even though there's video of the missile launcher being put on the back of a truck and quickly hurried out of the area. Russia has never claimed responsibility, nor has any justice been done for the victims of MH117. Putin and his government have yet to be brought to any type of justice for it and have denied all responsibility. So this guy's got a lot of blood in his hands. Mr. Poroshenko hasn't forgotten Australia's support for his soldiers. I want to thank the whole Australian government and the Ukraine dysphoria because in most critical years we receive a significant amount of assistance, including the clothes for military, 
boots, blankets, goggles, helmets, and that helped me equip my troops to protect our soil, Mr. Poroshenko said. And that's obviously referring to the early stages of the annexing of Crimea, where the Ukraine bolstered its military capabilities and trained a lot of soldiers to resist the Russian advances back in 2014. We'll cover that a bit later. Mr. Poroshenko was back in his home country and back in politics, despite facing charges of treason that he said were politically motivated. The most important thing is the unity of the nation, he told 7.30. As Ukraine's military and citizens prepare for an even larger military crisis, Mr. Poroshenko was quick and politely reminded foreigners that the conflict from 2014 never ended. Western media, the annexing of Crimea was in the news cycle for a few weeks, a month or two, then it was dropped, and we haven't really heard much of it since. If you wanted to find any news on it, it's something you really had to try and research yourself. We are already eight years in the war, and this is not a frozen conflict. This is the fourth one, and every single week, Ukrainians, Ukrainian losing our hero. Our soldiers, every single day, we have wounded soldiers, he said. He believed the only way to stop a full-scale invasion was to raise the costs for Russia. The UK and the US have already supplied anti-tank weapons. Mr. Poroshenko said anti-aircraft weapons would also help significantly. We are now in the important negotiation about the anti-aircraft missiles, and we should renew their practice for lend-lease from World War II, when American and Western world supplied us with the weapons. Increasing Ukraine's ability to shoot down Russian fighter jets is a deterrence, he told 7.30. It is a defensive weapon. The United States has threatened to cut off Russia from the international finance system and ban Russian gas via its Nord Stream to pipeline to Europe, and rightfully so. I mean, they shouldn't be allowed to sell commodities on a world scale and fund the war through legitimate business. I mean, it, it sucks for the people of Russia, but unfortunately, your leader has declared war, an unjust war on another country. This is one of the economic side effects of that. It's no different to Germany in World War II. But Mr. Poroshenko had other ideas to deter Mr. Putin, which Russia would see as provocation. The best answer for Putin's blackmail is very simple, he said. In the middle of this year, at the summit of NATO in Madrid, Ukraine and Georgia should receive a membership action plan. This is not the membership, but this is a very strong and effective stimulus against the Russian aggression. To do otherwise, he told 7.30, would be giving the Russian president veto power. And that's like I mentioned earlier, the Russians veto everything in the UN and make any type of decision very difficult. If a vote doesn't go their way, they just veto it and it's kind of null and voided and it doesn't go much further than that. And that's one of the real problems with the UN. That's why nothing ever really seems to get done. Unless you're talking about global pandemics and coronavirus, then all of a sudden... The UN has a, a lot of power to get shit done. Funny about that. If you give a precedent to Putin, he will have a right to give the permission, green light or red light, to Ukraine for the NATO and for EU inter integration. I think Putin will reach their goals. Putin blackmailing is effective against all democracies, against the whole European Union, Mr. Poroshenko said. And there's a lot more articles... And these ones that have been written recently, and it doesn't really get a hell of a lot more positive. Some of the titles are pretty concerning. There's an article here titled, US Delivers Response to Moscow's Ukraine Demands 
after Russian warns of retaliatory measures. They're always threatening retaliation at the slightest resistance. I mean, you can't kick someone in the head then complain when they want to kick back. And this is kind of what Putin's doing. He's He wants everything his own way. He wants to invade Ukraine again, but doesn't want anyone to intervene. He doesn't want the world to step in, even though they, they will. And as soon as the US or another superpower says anything, expresses any type of resistance, then he'll go on the defensive and claim retaliatory measures. There'll be this loose threat of using weapons or sanctions or you know whatever it is. It's probably just fear-mongering because he's got himself backed into a pretty tight corner at the moment. I don't think things are going the way he planned or anticipated. And I think his little empire is on the verge of crumbling, even more so than it already was. There's another one called a Russian attack on Ukraine possible any day now, White House says. The one particularly interesting article that caught my eye, I haven't read this article or found it before. It's literally popped up. It literally popped up when I was reading the article during the recording process. It was posted an hour ago. It's 1.48 p.m. at time of recording. And this one's titled Chinese and Russian warships located near Alaska in Bering Sea. That's interesting and very concerning. So let's have a quick look at what, what it's referring to. A U.S. Coast Guard ship on a routine patrol in the Bering Sea near Alaska came across three Chinese and four Russian naval vessels in single formation. The vessels included a guided missile cruiser from China and a Russian destroyer. The patrol boat known as a cutter called Kimball discovered the vessels about 138 kilometers north of Alaska's Kiska Island, which lies between the U.S. state and Russia. The Honolulu-based Kimball, a 127-meter vessel, observed as the ships broke formation and disappeared. Yeah, I bet they fucking did. A C-130 Hercules provided air support for Kimball from the Coast Guard station in Kodiak. This is a quote. While the formation has operated in accordance with international rules and norms, we will meet presence with presence to ensure there are no disruptions to U.S. interests in the maritime environment around Alaska, Rear Admiral Nathan Moore said. The Coast Guard said Operation Frontier Sentinel Guidelines call for meeting presence with presence when strategic compete when strategic competitors operate in and around U.S. waters. Kimball will continue to monitor the area. The Chinese and Russian formations came a month after NATO Security General Jens Stoltenberg warned about China's interest in the Arctic and Russia's military build-up there. Why the fuck can't everyone just get along? It's funny that these communist countries preach about being for the people, but they're always sticking their nose in where it doesn't belong. They're always trying to take someone else's resources to fund their empires all built on complete bullshit that further con their own people. And this is something that happens quite regularly with the Chinese. They're always, they always have warships spotted in someone else's water, but they always cry wolf when they're called out about it. They always try to blame whoever it is that spotted them and come up with some bullshit as to why they're there and say, oh, we will not accept any type of reaction and so-and-so's, this country's overreacting. But yet you're the one that is starting the, causing the problem in the first place. You're illegally entering someone's waters and then crying wolf when you get caught out. Mr. Stolenberg said Russia had set up a new Arctic command and opened hundreds of new and former Soviet-era Arctic military sites, including deep water ports and airfields. 
China has declared itself a near-Arctic state and plans to build the world's largest icebreakery city. Of course they do. China's always declaring itself near something. They've got investment and interests all around the world, and they're always claiming that they have some type of legitimate link to it. It's a typical communist playbook. Just make it up to suit yourself. Bend the rules so it sounds somewhat legitimate and gives you even further legitimization to invade or take someone else's resources or land. Beijing and Moscow have also pledged to intensify practical cooperation in the Arctic. This forms part of a deepening strategic partnership that challenges our values and interests, Mr. Stolenberg said. This is not the first time Chinese naval ships have sailed near Alaskan waters. In September 2021, Coast Guard cutters in the Bering Sea and North Pacific Ocean encountered Chinese ships some about 80 kilometers off the Aleutian Islands. Uh, fucking concerning and interesting. That was also on abc.net.au. So what the fuck are China and Russia planning? What are they up to? Why all of a sudden an interest in the Arctic? I know Russia is looking for China for support and supplies and arms in going back into Ukraine. I don't think there's going to be much of a Russian army left if they try to invade Ukraine again. It's just completely bizarre 2022. I mean, it feels like we're living in a fucking Twilight Zone episode. Just when you thought things were getting better and the world was getting a little more peaceful, we could you know put all the wars of the past 20 years behind us, things quickly reverted. Things are just as archaic and barbaric as there ever have been. And now you've got conflicts in Iran popping up because the morality squad killed a woman in their custody for not covering her head properly. This is 2022, we got... Elon Musk going to the to Mars to set up a colony. Technology is progressing. It's a good time to live, but it's also a concerning one. You have threats from climate change and communists, China and Russia making this unholy alliance. You have countries like Iran that are just going backwards again. Great times. Great uplifting times we're living in. So this brings us to Russian fascists. So Russia, in one sense, has become the new Nazis, despite playing a rather large role in the downfall of Hitler and the Nazi regime during World War II. They have become, in the Ukraine at least, the fascist antagonizers. If you want to look at things through a Mayan calendar lens, is this the war cycle starting again? We've just ended one 20-year war, and now this. You know, why can't everyone just get along? Why, you know, why does someone or some nation have to start something all the fucking time? This is why peace, in my opinion, is not possible. The human psyche and condition, in particular the human ego, is so fragile, so primitive and intolerant. A massive change in human thinking would have to occur before global peace could even be a remote possibility. I mean, is it even possible to have a 20-year period anymore where there isn't some form of conflict somewhere in the world? It may not be a huge conflict like we're seeing now. Is it, is it possible to have a part of the world where some group isn't trying to oppress another group? Maybe it's just more noticeable because we have 24-hour news and social media now as opposed to even 20 years ago. If 30 years ago, you wouldn't hear about smaller conflicts that are going on around the world like conflicts in Africa that no one really cares about, you would never hear about them. 
They're more prevalent now because it's on the news all the time and it's easier to access the information. With Russia being the aggressor and taking this extremist and fascist view and trying to oppress the Ukraine, they're fast repeating the mistakes of the Soviet Union and past conflicts. There are two conflicting histories going on. There is the factual history of Russia that has been recorded by time and by various historians throughout the ages. And then there is the delusional Soviet history, which is basically a giant form of propaganda that helps build, facilitate, and legitimize the Soviet lie and the bigger overarching lie of communism. And one form of propaganda you see over and over again is this justification for the invasion of Ukraine. Putin claims that Russia has a legitimate right to invade Ukraine based on the theory that it was once part of the Russian Empire. It might have been a part of the Soviet Empire at one stage, but it's not anymore. So if you want to get technical, the Ukraine is older than Russia by about 400 years. Russia has no claim over it. Soviet history isn't Russian history. There was also another Russia once before the lie of communism decided to write its version of history. The history of Ukraine and Russia is a long and complex one. Both countries, and pretty much most of the countries in Eastern Europe, have a claim and can trace their ancestry back to the Rus' Empire. The origins of Ukraine go back to the Kievan Rus' Empire, which existed long before the Soviet Union and their version of history. What is Kievan Rus' and the Rus' Empire? Well, guess what? I'm about to tell you. Kievan Rus' was founded around the 9th to possibly the mid-13th century. It may have been earlier or a little later than that. No one really knows for sure. But the 9th century is the agreed-upon date to the founding of the empire. It was a state in the northern and eastern regions of Europe, which makes it interesting compared to other European nations of the same time. It wasn't just one state. It was a group of people and different nations. It was a state made up of multi-ethnic peoples, including the Norse, East Slavic and Finnic peoples and their various governments. The name Rus comes from the Old Norse word meaning Rusland or Land of the Rus. The main theory behind the translation of the Old Norse term has its origins in the Proto-Finnic term for Sweden, which is Rutsi, meaning men who row. In other words, Vikings. So this kind of makes sense. The Vikings were in Europe, obviously, and Eastern Europe. They would traverse the waterways and river systems using their longboats. Obviously, wind power wasn't much good in a river, and it was probably pretty hard to navigate a ship traveling pretty fast in a river system with all the bends. So the only way to really get around in the rivers was to row by basically using manpower to navigate the river systems. Sails would also probably make you stand out. I don't really think you can use sail power in the rivers, but I don't know, I don't really know anything about sailing, so yeah, don't take my word for it. So manpower and rowing was the main mode of transportation in the rivers of Eastern Europe. And Eastern Europe has a, a lot of rivers. It's a theory, but it's probably pretty close on the money. Another connection could be related to Roslagen, the upper northern coastal areas of Stockholm, as it was known in the days of the Vikings. It also might be pronounced Roslagen, but I'm just going to call it Roslagen. 
During the 19th century, both Russian and Ukrainian historiography used Rus to describe the period when the center of the Rus world was in Kiev. Kiev's obviously the capital of Ukraine and has been a focal point of the Russian invasion. Putin thought he'd be walking down the streets of Kiev in three days after the invasion. So this brings up the burning question of who founded the Rus Empire. Well, that was none other than the Vargarian Prince Ruik, the founder of the Ruik dynasty. It was a sizable empire back in the day, ranging from the White Sea, roughly the northwest coast of Russia, right down to the southern regions of the Black Sea, all the way across to the far most western reaches of the Vistula in Poland, before finally ending in the east on the Taman Peninsula in Russia. So we're starting to see that the Rus Empire was a pretty inclusive one, encompassing various modern nations and uniting the East Slavic peoples. Ukraine, Russia and Belarus all claim a common ancestral heritage that has been traced back to the Rurik dynasty and Kievan Rus. Russia and Belarus both get their names from the word Rus as well. The story of the Rus Empire goes all the way back to Rurik of Ladoga. He lived from around 8 24 to 879 AD. Ruik was a Varengian. In other words, he was a Viking. Varengian was what the Romans who were posted in Eastern Europe called Vikings. These particular Vikings were mostly Swedish in origin and came to settle and rule Kivian Rus during the 9th to 11th centuries. The Varengians spread and settled the neighboring regions of Belarus, Russia, and of course Ukraine. So Rurik was a chieftain of the Rus people. He is generally thought to be the founder of the Rus Empire and its first leader according to the Primary Chronicle, which was written in the 12th century by Nestor the Chronicler. It chronicles the history of the Slavic peoples and is our best source of information on that particular time period. Unfortunately, there aren't many other texts from the area covering the time period of Rurik. Nestor's accounts are pretty much the only ones we have to go by. The Chronicle was written in Kiev around the year 1113. It has been added to over the centuries and debated by academics and historians, mainly due to its mistakes in dating and a few inaccuracies, but that's the same as most history texts that have survived. They're always going to be debated by academics. Nothing's perfect. There are probably some mistakes here and there and liberties taken, but it's the same as most things. All that aside, it's still the best source of knowledge on the origins of the Rus, and really the only surviving text from that time period. The Chronicle opens with these lines. These are the narratives of bygone years, regarding the origin of the land of Rus, the first princes of Kiev, and from what source the land of Rus had its beginnings. So as the story goes, there were a few different tribes living in the areas before Aruik arrived, and his Varengians. Some of the tribes were the Chudes, roughly located in Estonia and northwest Russia, the Meris, Volga, and eastern Finns, Vesis of Vepsis, that were basically the Finns that were sandwiched between Russia and Ukraine, Krivichs of Belarus and Russia, and eastern Slavs. Rurik and the Varengians must have tried to attack or settle the area some years beforehand, because the Vagarians are kicked out of the lands and pushed back to the sea. The tribes that kicked them out seem to do a pretty good job and don't pay them a tribute. In the years after, the various tribes attempted to govern themselves and rule on their own, 
But they ended up picking fights with one another, which led to them agreeing to ask the Vagarians to come back and re-establish order and govern the land. And this is where Ruik comes into it. Ruik was the leader of the Vagarians, and in the year 860 to 862, he comes back to the area with his brothers, Sinius and Truvor. He also brings with him a sizable entourage of advisors, assistants, and others a man of his stature would bring in this type of situation. It's unclear if Ruik was present the first time the Vagarians tried to settle in the area. It's not really known if him or his brothers were there, or if he had a detailed knowledge of the land and the people and different tribes that made up the area. Chances are he probably was, as he was the leader of the Vagarians. So Ruik and his brothers establish themselves and start the Ruik dynasty. Ruik consolidates the various lands, combining them into his territory. His first place of business was Ladiger in Russia. This was around 862 to 864. Ladiger is located near modern-day St. Petersburg, near the large lake system. However, this site wasn't suitable, so he decides to move his operations down the river a bit to Novgorod. Novgorod was a building or a fort near the Volkhov River, which connects to the Ladiger River and isn't that far downstream. Novgorod is one of the oldest cities in Russia. It means new fortification or new city. It connects to the various rivers. I can see why he chose this spot. Transportation would have been pretty easy. It's pretty convenient to get supplies and troops up and down the river. It's also safe. If you get attacked, you can fuck off in your boat. Things weren't easy for his brothers. Sinus travels to Belazo on the southern banks of Lake Beloy in Russia. Truvor travels to the town of, of Izborsk in Russia, not too far from the Estonian border. Both brothers set themselves and their territories up, but unfortunately both were dead not long afterward. No one knows how, and there isn't a lot of information on their deaths or why slash how both of them died. So Ruik ruled right up until his death in 1879. On his deathbed, he passed his kingdom to Oleg, one of his kinsmen. He also entrusted his younger son Igor's care to Oleg to raise him after his death. It's a big responsibility and a lot of trust, so Oleg must have been a pretty important person and trusted person to Ruik. The saga of the Rus Empire continues with Oleg. So Prince Oleg, aka Oleg the Prophet, aka Oleg the Seer, reigned from the late 9th century to early 10th century. He ruled the Rus people and carried on the legacy of Ruik. There's some debate to Oleg's origins. There's not heaps of information on him. And there's been a lot of dispute to his origins and to who he was. The most common generic version of his story is retold in the Chronicle. Oleg starts off running the empire from Novgorod and Lodiger before moving to Kiev. He takes control of the surrounding areas and states that he has an eye on the future city of Kiev. Oleg seizes control of Kiev from Asgold and Deir. Asgold and Deir were sent to Constantinople by Ruik some years beforehand, but while traversing the river Dnieper, they came across Kiev and took it off the Polons, East Slavic tribes. Not knowing how they took it off of them, most likely wasn't without a fight. There's not too many people who would give up their land to a couple of foreigners. 
As it turns out, the Polans were paying tributes to the Khazars before Asgold and Dyer arrived, so the Polans may not have been that disjointed at the arrival of the Norse brothers. In 882, Oleg travels to Kiev and meets with Asgold and Dyer. According to the Chronicle and Legend, Oleg comes up with an elaborate plan to trick the pair and has them killed in the process. The details as to why have, have been debated over the years. But the most common theory is it was due to Asgold's baptism and the killings could have been a sort of pagan payback for converting to Christianity. But then again, who really knows? So after he slays A&D, the city and surrounding lands are now his to consolidate. Oleg names his newly acquired city Kiev, claiming it as the new capital of the Kievian Rus Empire. Oleg was clever, and there was more than one reason why he wanted the city. He didn't just get the other two out of the way for no reason. He chose to make Kiev the new capital due to its strategic location. It was just close enough to key areas such as the Mediterranean, parts of Europe and beyond, and it was a prime location to stage an invasion or an attack, and Kiev provided a convenient spot in which to do so. After a few years setting up his new state, Oleg decides to do that. He launches a full-scale military attack on Constantinople. In 907, he does exactly that. According to legend and the Chronicle, Oleg and his forces set sail for the Byzantine Empire. Oleg assaults the city of Constantinople, but decides to wait until the winds were just right to let the sails loose, and as the story goes, the boats spread their sails and headed towards the city. The boats also apparently had wheels attached to them, you know, go figure. When the sails were filled, the boats were pushed up onto land by wind power and headed straight for the city. It sounds like a good story, I'm not really sure that would have actually happened. Might have to try that on Mythbusters. It adds to the myth and the legend, but is most likely an exaggeration. I don't think the wind would have been able to push the boats out of the water and up through the city streets. It sounds a bit improbable. It probably would have hit something or got stuck in the sand or broken apart on rocks, if that would even work at all, which is highly unlikely. Oleg must have intimidated the locals, and his shock and awe campaign seems to have paid off. Because the citizens of Constantinople don't seem to have many choices and don't really seem to put up much of a fight against Oleg. They start peace negotiations pretty soon afterwards. Oleg fixes his shield to the city gates and the two sides start negotiations, which ended in Oleg striking a pretty lucrative trade agreement with the Byzantine Empire. The agreement favoured both sides, but unfortunately the Byzantines don't record this event, so maybe... Maybe the event wasn't as big as it's been made out to be in the Chronicle. Maybe it was a more of a smaller engagement. Not worthy of donating many resources to record it. Maybe parts of it are true, or maybe it was just made up. Not much else is known about Prince Oleg, and there isn't a lot recorded about him. He dies a few years later in 912, but the dating once again is debated. The Kievian Rus Empire was then handed down to Ruik's son, Igor. If you want to get technical about the ancestry of the Ukraine and Russia, you can both thank the Norse. Both countries seem to have a pretty fixed history with Norse settlers. The Ukraine, if you want to get technical, has been around longer than Russia by about 400 to 600 years. And as I said, 
there is a big difference between Russian history and Soviet history. Putin chooses to ignore real history in favor of the altered Soviet imperialistic Russian version. To dive in this further, I found an interesting article titled Vladimir Putin points to history to justify his Ukrainian invasion, regardless of reality. It was published the 8th of March, 2022. It was published a day after I started writing this. It is by David Roger Maripius, a distinguished university professor of a distinguished university professor of Russian and East European History University of Alberta. I found it on theconversation.com. Vladimir Putin's interest in history is well known. He has accused Poland of starting the Second World War. Interesting. Didn't know Poland was behind that. He maintains that the Soviet Union liberated the Western world from Nazism, and any discussion over that view is historical revisionism. Yeah, interesting. You know, I, th- I thought I thought the liberation of Nazism came from a joint Allied effort. Didn't know it was just Russia. I mean, I knew he was quote-unquote into history, but I had no idea it was even that delusional. So by that definition, every history book written about World War II has been incorrect then. I might have to get one of those new revised Russian versions. His focus has been four-pronged. First, like the narrative of the former Soviet Union, Putin regards the 10th century Kievian Rus state as the foundation of modern Russia, Ukraine and Belarus. A statue of the first prince to embrace Christianity, Volodymyr in Russian Vladimir, was erected in Moscow in 2016, a provocative counter to the much older one that is in Kiev since 1858. In this way, Russia challenged Ukraine's historical legacy as the first of the Eastern Slavic states to embrace the Orthodox religion. Second, Putin perceives the period of the Russian Empire spanning 1721 to 1917 as a positive phenomenon. In March 2014, when Russia annexed Crimea from Ukraine, he made reference to the return of the peninsula to the Russian harbour, in parentheses, and to the revival of what he termed the Ruski Mir, Russian world, demonising Ukrainian nationalism. Putin's third focus is Ukrainian nationalism from the 1930s to the early 1950s, particularly the wing of the Organisation of Ukrainian Nationalists, the OUNB, led by Stepan Banderia after 1940 and the 1942 formation of its military, the Ukrainian Insurgent Army, the UPA. At certain points, both the ONUB and the UPA collaborated with the German occupying forces and the UPA fought Soviet security forces in a protracted conflict in Western Ukraine until the early 1950s. The war was brutal, bitter, and nothing was yielded by either side. The Soviet Union had superior forces and eventually prevailed. Roman Shokhayevich, the commander of the UPA, was, was killed in a skirmish near Lviv in 1950. Bandera was poisoned by Soviet agents in Germany in 1959. Yeah, the Russians have probably got to come up with better ways of assassinating political figures. They always seem to use poison. They poisoned Navaldi a couple of years ago. There was the poisonings in the UK several years ago. That's interesting. I didn't know there was a conflict between Ukraine and Russia in the 1950s. There's a lot of European history that isn't common knowledge, unless you're really into history or you study it. You probably don't know these conflicts ever ever even took place. The Soviet Union subsequently demonized both the ONUB and the UPA, portraying them as Nazi collaborators and traitors to their country. But in the Ukrainian dysphoria of North America and Europe, 
they were heroes and fighters for Ukrainian independence. So interesting. So we're starting to see Putin build this narrative around quote-unquote Nazism in Ukraine. So he's using two groups that were fighting the Soviet Union, and probably rightfully so. They're probably fighting for the same reasons that Ukrainians are fighting for now, to liberate themselves from oppression. So we're starting to see this narrative build around Nazism. So it's Putin using these events that happened in the 50s as justification for the invasion of Ukraine, or is he merely taking these events and facts that happened and twisting them and basically using, using them as a fictionalized, revisionist version of history. It's interesting. So like I said, I didn't know this prior to reading this article. So it does shed some new light on where the Russian idea of Ukrainian Nazism has come from. Yeah, and maybe there was some validity to the UPA and the ONUB being brutal or quote-unquote fascists. It did say in the article they did work with the German occupying force, but was that the lesser of two evils? Did they this group work with the German occupying force to fight what they saw as a more brutal and oppressive force, or was it because they just simply didn't like the Soviets or the Russians? Putin's fourth focus was centered on 2014, when the maiden Ukrainian for Central Square uprising reached its peak in Kiev, and other cities and the UPA red and black flag appeared on the streets among the array of blue and yellow Ukrainian flags. The right sector of the political party, Sovbarda, both from the far right political spectrum, entered the conflict. The protest turned violent and ultimately the president of Ukraine, Viktor Yankachev, fled to Russia. I think I'm saying that right. Probably haven't pronounced any of those names right so far. According to Putin and his associates, quote-unquote, neo-Nazis had taken over Ukraine in a coup d'etat. The assertion was used specifically to justify Russia's annexation of Crimea. Okay, so that's becoming a little clearer now. So as I'm interpreting it, it, he is using some of these political groups that have existed in the past and have maybe have morphed into modern groups or the modern groups have taken inspiration from some of the groups of the past. And he is using that, quote-unquote, Nazi tag to justify what he sees as a liberation or, or, or annexing of the Crimea. Because that's the thing he, he always claimed is that he's saving Ukrainians, Russian Ukrainians from Nazis. And a lot of troops had, there's a lot of Russian troops that have brought into the propaganda who think that the country is overrun by Nazis and that they're saving the innocent Ukrainians from this Nazi oppression, where in reality, the oppressive force is the Russians who are committing some of the same war crimes and atrocities that the Nazis did in World War II. So in a way, it's a bizarre Twilight Zone-esque alternative repeat of history. It's truly weird and really fascinating at the same time. It's kind of hard to believe that it's happened, but at the same time, it doesn't seem out of place if that makes sense. It's just, it's quite weird. And when you start to dig deeper into it and you start getting behind some of this stuff, it just makes everything a hell of a lot more interesting and confusing at the same time because so in a way Putin is doing what a lot of you know, these PC groups are doing, dictators and political and even social groups are doing now, which is picking and choosing parts of history that agrees with their narrative. Not so much the 
real or factual version of history, the history that actually happened. It's more so the history that they think or want to happen, and they're using it as a justification for their actions, in a way. That's just my two cents. But keep flags in mind, because we'll be coming back to the importance of flags in a future episode. We broke out of the Donbass region of eastern Ukraine following the intervention of Russia in alliance with some local leaders. Some in the far eastern regions of Ukraine were outraged by the maiden clashes and the May 2014 killing of 42 anti-maiden activists in Odessa. Russia intervened directly in the war twice, in August 2014 and February 2015, to ensure the separatists were not defeated by Ukrainians' anti-terrorist operation launched by acting president Alexander Truchinov. Once again, probably not saying that correctly. So, I do apologize for the pronunciation. So what now? Do Putin's four historical lenses explain his Ukrainian invasion? Or has he been fueled simply by his belief that Russia and Ukraine should be joined as one people linked by history, religion and culture? Oddly, Putin made no attempt either in 2014 or in 2022 to reinstate Yanukovych as president, demonstrating his total lack of confidence in his former acolyte. And his accusations of Nazism in Ukraine don't reflect the reality of the changes introduced in the country since 2014. Yanukovych was replaced by an oligarch, Petro Poroshenko, and he was mentioned in the article I read earlier, who adjusted quickly to the radical mood in the country. He approved the 2015 memory laws that made it illegal to display Soviet symbols in Ukraine. Lenin statues were toppled and communist city and street names were eradicated. Okay, so he's um, enacting some pretty radical changes, especially when it comes to Soviet and communist history. So we're starting to see this evolution in Ukraine becoming a freer country, one that favors its own history rather than, as I said before, the Soviet version of history. Because no one in their right mind wants to go back to the Soviet way of doing things. The far-right squads from Right Sector and Sovbarda that had infiltrated the maiden protests failed to make any impact politically. And that's not a Ukrainian thing either. We see anarchist groups infiltrate every protest around the world. There's always a far-right or a far-left or an extremist or anarchist group that always infiltrates what are up until then pretty peaceful demonstrations or protests against the government or whatever people are protesting against in that particular country at that time. So that's not something that is really that new. That happens everywhere. And it's probably going to happen in the protests in Russia that are going on at the moment. They were also negligible in the 2019 elections when Volodymyr Zelensky, a TV comedian with no political background, defeated Poroshenko in a landslide. They won the seat between them when his hastily constructed centrist party, Servant of the People, swept Parliament. And that refers to Zelensky's TV show he was on, Servant of the People, which he turned into his political campaign. I think someone said to him, why don't you run for president? And he kind of laughed it off. And as it turns out, he gave it a shot and he won. And he used the television name as the name of his campaign. And so far, he's lived up to it. I mean, he has done nothing but serve the people of Ukraine. He's put himself on the front lines. And he's done an exceptional job at leading his country in a very difficult time. Especially one against an egomaniac 
tyrant with nuclear weapons. A lot of communist countries, they always use the People's Party, the Democratic People's Party, Servant of the People. They use those of the people titles very interchangeably and they use them all the time and they never ever serve the people. It's always for the top elites in charge. So Zelensky is definitely breaking the mold. He's a legitimate servant of the people and that's basically what a politician should be. They should serve the people. They shouldn't serve themselves or any group or entity's agenda. So what does this all mean? As an independent country, Ukraine has suffered from corruption, poverty and violent periods. But Putin's accusations hardly describe today's reality. Yeah, and that's exactly right. What European or Western country in the world doesn't have some type of extremist element or you know, quote-unquote Nazi group? I mean, white supremacists exist in pretty much every Western and European country in the world. Wherever there's white people, you'll find a white supremacist group, a hate group, a Nazi group. Ukraine is probably no different, but it probably doesn't have any more or less than any other country in the world. I mean, Germany still has neo-Nazis and white supremacists. There's a lot of right-wing groups that have popped up all around the world, especially in recent years. Italy's new prime minister is very right-leaning. Right-wing governments are being elected because the people see that as a way of combating what is happening with economic migrants coming from the Middle East and Africa into Europe. And I'm, you know, I'm sure the left has their own version of that. The Ukraine is no different, and I'm sure the Ukraine isn't overrun by Nazis as Putin claims it is. Is he using the Nazi card as a very poor excuse to invade an independent country like Ukraine? Ukraine is more democratic than Russia, and I don't think there can be any debate about that. Ukraine hasn't conscripted 300,000 men who want nothing to do with the war to bolster its dwindling numbers. Ukraine has had some political corruption and troubles in the past, but Zelensky won a democratic election fair and square, where Putin, on the other hand, rigs elections and changes laws so he can rule for life. And the referendums we're seeing in the annexed parts of the Crimea and Ukraine are completely falsified and rigged. There's no way they can be taken as legitimate. There's soldiers forcing people to vote for Russia. And that will probably be justification for him to reinvade the Ukraine. The reason some of these these regions want to be part of quote-unquote Mother Russia is because being a part of Russia affords them protections. And if the Ukraine attacks what Russia sees as rightfully Russian territory, it claims it's going to defend those areas with military force. So whether that happens or not, it remains to be seen. But you never really know when it comes to Putin. Ukraine is more democratic than Russia. It holds regular elections and there is relative freedom of speech and assembly. This supposed neo-Nazi regime is led by a Russophone Jew from eastern Ukraine. Putin's view of Ukrainian history and current forces in Ukraine is deeply, perhaps deliberately flawed. End of article. And I would agree with that. I think, yeah, he's, like I said before, he's picking and choosing the parts of history he likes, and he's choosing to hear the side of history that he wants. So speaking of revisionist history, revisionist history is a dangerous thing. It could have potential consequences. You can't just pick and choose the facts that you like or that align with your narrative. One, it's untruthful. Two, it tells a one-sided version of history. And three, it's just bullshit. Revisionist history and its consequences. 
Hollywood should really take note of this, what can happen when you try to change or alter history, or when one nation wants to change its own history in favor of another version of it, where it is the hero and another nation is the villain. Let's use the quote-unquote Nazi card as justification to invade someone else's country to liberate the quote-unquote oppressed people of the invading country. I mean, Hollywood loves to change history and narratives, even the smallest details they like to tweak. I mean, this is a bit off topic, but that new movie that's causing a lot of controversy, The Woman King, I mean, the title sounds stupid. The Domi tribe, which she is portraying the woman king of, used to sell slaves. They used to sell other African tribes to white slavers. That's a little historical fact that the film fails to mention. From what I've heard, it doesn't present those facts and is more of a fantasy action film. While that in itself is fine, I mean, movies are a creative art form, so, you know, have at it. Change history, but make it clear that this is not fact. This is not trying to stick true to historical facts, and it is a fictional narrative. Take a movie like 300, for example. It's a real event with people who really did exist, but you're mythicizing the events. You're making them more fantastical than they probably were in reality. You're changing some... The story and what happened is still the same. It's just, you know, Spartans didn't fight in leather jocks and capes. They were quite heavily armored. There wasn't gigantic war rhinos and elephants. The numbers of Xerxes' forces weren't as high. Xerxes wasn't nine foot tall. Things like that. That's a different thing altogether that's adding a more creative element to a realistic story if you take a world war ii movie based on a battle or particular event and you start changing things then that's not really an historical take on history and i know they're all and i know most a lot of those true stories are they say based on true stories yeah it's fine you can change some details here and there but the overall event has to have taken place in short revisionism Especially historical revisionism is dangerous. You see what happens when one group starts calling another group Nazis with no basis for the accusation, like the extreme left has. Everyone, according to them, are Nazis, including Jews and black people, which doesn't make a lot of sense and is a complete bullshit thing to say. In reality, they, they wouldn't know what a Nazi was if they got kicked in the head by a pair of jackboots. It can also lead to dehumanization to that group. It can make the inhumane treatment of said group justifiable, i.e. concentration camps, genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity, etc. And we've seen some of these things play out in the Ukraine. We've seen mass graves of innocent men, women, and children, the elderly, and soldiers. There's been, what, 400 graves dug up in a forest in some of the liberated cities in the Ukraine. There's been the mistreatment of POWs by the Russians who you know, believe that their enemy are monsters and Nazis. Some other people who were probably put in charge were just sadistic pieces of shit to begin with. So it's, it's this kind of dangerous mindset that leads to this stuff happening. This is the same shit that Hitler pushed in World War II. He, you know, he labeled the Jews. He called them out. He turned them into the enemy with no real justification whatsoever. He made them the object of his hatred, and look what it led to. Millions of Jews were wiped out because of one man's delusional outlook based on revisionist history. 
Hitler may not be so much revisionist history, but he he saw the Jews as inferior and the reason problems were happening in Germany and Austria, which were untrue. And that led to concentration camps and some of the worst acts committed by human beings against one another. If you keep calling everyone Nazis, then eventually people become desensitized to that word and forget the horrors of the Nazis. So the situation in Ukraine is a very complex one. Putin is using any resource at his disposal. He is also doing deals with very dodgy allies. It also makes me wonder, is this why he was in Syria a few years ago? Has he been planning this for decades? Has he been gradually eliminating all opposition so he can have complete control? Russia and China and a lot of communist countries very rarely help other nations out of the goodness of their own heart. They usually want something in return. It's usually weapons, money, land, power or resources. So Russia has had a lot of help from some of its Middle Eastern allies. Iran has also helped Russia. It has provided them with low-cost drones and weapons and some of its Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, which is some of the, the best fighters in Iran and the ones that have done some dodgy shit in the past. Iran is also dealing with Venezuela, China, North Korea, Syria, Iraq, and some of the other good places on Earth. Iran is helping Russia to undermine US influence in the Middle East and will help pretty much anyone who doesn't support the United States. I mean, it's in a way, it's commies helping commies. All they want is something in return. It's Like I said, it's not because they want to help out, because they, you know, they actually believe Putin. It's, I'm helping you because you're undermining US power on the global scale, but we're going to want something in return because of it. So this conflict looks like Putin's wet dream to rebuild the Soviet Union and rewrite history. So far, his reign has combined elements of the Russian Empire and parts of the Soviet Empire, the ones that he liked. But it now seems like he is determined to bring about the second coming of the Soviet Union and reclaim what was once part of the very expansive Soviet Union. Just because it once was doesn't mean it should be or always be. As I keep mentioning, Soviet history isn't all of Russian history. Unfortunately, it is a part of it and always will be. Russia and Ukraine existed long before the delusional idea of the Soviet Union and its imperialistic communist dream. And that's one of the big lies of communism. Communist countries may not be ruled by an emperor, but the so-called people's democracies are usually run by psychotic despots who think they're emperors or the supreme leader. That can never be challenged, and any challenge to their fragile ego and rule is met with outlandish threats and some pretty extreme actions, as you see, as we've seen in China with the persecution of minority groups. Just look at North Korea. Its people are starving, while its leader, Kim Jong-un, is fat and happy. I mean, look at that dude. He's probably got one of the worst physiques on planet Earth. And yet his people are forced to eat, survive on cabbage soup and scraps. Putin thinks he's the ordained czar. Good old Kim inherited after his father and is a tyrant. Ji Ping of China thinks he's the reincarnation of Emperor Yang. They've all amended the constitutions to give themselves unlimited power that is unchallenged and rule for life. The other thing communist leaders all have in common is their fragile egos. They're very easy to upset and every time 
Someone farts, they're up in arms about it. I mean, so much for the people's democracy. They may start off being elected like Putin, which was more than likely rigged or so heavily favoured in his way, he would have won either way. I mean, this is a guy that was with the KGB in the military, and I think he was a naval intelligence officer. So that allegedly may or may not have got him into politics and won him the election. The other really funny thing about communist leaders is they all claim to be for and of the people. But allegedly Putin on paper, anyway, is a humble public servant who makes a modest wage for his time dedicated to his people, drives and owns several moderately priced Soviet-era cars, and lives in the average home. Despite his multi-million dollar yacht seized by Italian officials a few months ago, his many villas that have been repossessed around the Mediterranean and Europe, and then there are the alleged rumours that he is one of the richest men on earth. There's been rumours of him making the vast majority of his wealth through illegal gas and oil pipelines. So how much money has Mr. Putin got? To find that out, I found an article on 9news.com.au entitled, How much is Vladimir Putin worth? Almost no one knows for sure. It's by CNN, March 1st, 2022. The US and its European allies on Friday announced new sanctions on Russian President Vladimir Putin in the rare move targeting a foreign leader's personal wealth. But the impact of these sanctions may be largely symbolic. Although Mr. Putin is believed to hold billions of dollars in personal wealth, little is known about the amount or where it might be. Mr. Putin has left almost no paper trail for his assets, mostly property, which are hidden behind complex financial schemes organized by his confidants. According to a 2016 Panama Papers report by the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, among the luxuries that have been linked to Mr. Putin's friends and family, but never directly to him, are a $137.74 million, 100 million US, mega yacht and a Black Sea palace allegedly built for for Mr. Putin's personal use. On paper, the Russian leader looks like a humble bureaucrat. In 2018, Mr. Putin submitted an official income declaration that shows he owns an 800-square-foot apartment in St. Petersburg, along with two Soviet-era cars and an off-road truck. The Kremlin says his annual income is about $192,835, roughly $140,000 US. Not an immodest figure in Russia, though hardly one that could keep Mr. Putin sporting his rotation of luxury watches. Putin's visible watch collection is worth multiples of his official salary. Interesting. Must be some expensive timepieces. Bill Browder, an investor in Russia who became a fierce critic of Putin, told CNN in 2018. The wealth came as a result of extortion and massive theft from state funds. Now the plot thickens. Putin estimated to be worth $274 billion. Browder testified before the U.S. Senate in 2017 that he estimates that Russian leaders' wealth to hover around 274.48 billion, 200 billion U.S. in assets. Yeah, watch out, Elon and Bezos. Putin's coming for you. Which would make him among the wealthiest people on the planet? One theory of Mr. Putin's wealth suggests that he has strong-armed Russia's oligarchs, threatening them with arrest or worse unless they fork over cash or stakes in their companies to him. Still tracking his wealth has proven next to impossible. Forbes magazine, which counts sleuthing 
the personal fortunes of the world's elite as part of its core mission, said figuring out Mr. Putin's net worth is probably the most elusive riddle in wealth hunting. Yeah, interesting. So if he's stealing from oligarchs, one, he must have had a lot of power or dirt on them to be able to manipulate them and get their money off of them in the first place. He must have been doing, allegedly doing some pretty dodgy shit. I mean, how does he know that? And how how has he avoided being assassinated himself? Because the oligarchs don't fuck around. And if things keep deteriorating in Russia, which they probably will, the oligarchs may have some payback for Mr. Putin. And they have been pretty affected by the sanctions placed on Russia by the global community. A lot of them, a lot of oligarchs have had their bank accounts and assets frozen by the global community. The owner of Chelsea Football Club has had to sell his beloved Chelsea because of the war in Ukraine. So these are a lot of rich people who don't have access to their money. I mean, their frustration is going to boil over at some point. But just because the general public doesn't have a good sense of where Putin's assets are hiding, we can assume that the US and EU intelligence agencies and law enforcement agencies have been tracking his assets for years, said Ross S. Delston, an anti-money laundering expert. If the US government, along with the EU, were to get serious about going after his assets, there'd be a lot of targets to hit, Mr. Delston said. They'd be all over the world, certainly within the bounds of the EU and the US. But would freezing Mr. Putin's assets deter him from continuing the attack on Ukraine? Almost certainly not. We're not talking about stopping anything, Mr. Delston said. We're talking about punishing him. Which isn't to say the sanctions are toothless. They might only make a dent in Mr. Putin's total fortune, but they do undermine his credibility on, on the world stage. In stressing how rare it is for the United States to personally target a head of state with sanctions, the US Treasury Department said Friday that President Putin joins a very small group that includes despots such as Kim Jong-un, Alexander, Lukashenko and Bala and Bashar al-Assad. Further, Mr. Delston said the actual sting of the sanctions won't be painless for Putin. High net wealth people tend to get attached to their assets, even though they have plenty in reserve. Interesting. Putin has a, a lot of untraceable wealth that he's hoarded over the years. Where he got, gets it from is anyone's guess. Probably isn't that far of a stretch to imagine that a lot of it probably hasn't been gained legitimately or by legitimate business enterprises. I find this particularly interesting, the money side of Putin's empire, because it is such a mystery. There is, doesn't really seem to be much of a paper trail, but he has a lot of money. If the theories are to be believed, he potentially could be one of the richest men on the planet, or to have ever lived. So to dig a little further into this, there's an, I found another article on news.com.au, Theories emerge on how Russian President Vladimir Putin amassed $200 billion fortune. It's by Ali Foster, published 4th of February 2022. So this is written two days after the war began. As the threat of a Ukrainian-Russian war looms, all eyes are on Vladimir Putin, with questions being raised about the leader's rumored multi-billion dollar fortune. With everyone closely watching Russia's every move as it sits poised for an invasion of Ukraine, fresh questions have begun to swirl around the country's leader and his mysterious fortune. Questions over Russian President Vladimir Putin's personal wealth comes as US President Joe Biden revealed plans to impose new sanctions on two breakaway regions in Ukraine. 
The announcement came after Mr. Putin declared he would recognize the independence of these two regions, prompting Mr. Biden to announce he would issue an executive order that will prohibit new investment, trade, and financing by U.S. persons to, to, from, or in the areas. Yeah, you should be asking questions where his wealth came from, but can Biden really ask those questions? I mean, didn't one of his sons have some type of oil or gas energy dealings in the Ukraine several years ago? I mean, he's a wealthy man himself. A lot of world leaders are a lot better off than the common people. There are very few people who enter politics who, in these days anyway, that really come from mild means. Yeah, there are the exception, but if you are the head of the Republican or Democratic parties, you probably have a huge amount of wealth behind you. I don't think Biden's much difference. He's not a multi-billionaire, but he's got more money in the bank than you or I. On the one hand, Biden is right. They should be asking questions about Putin's wealth. But on the other hand, can a wealthy man like Biden really call out another wealthy man like Putin? Can you really start asking too many questions and making accusations about where he accumulated his wealth from or how legitimate it may be when, was it the Hunter Biden laptop saga, the mysterious laptop with some information on it or something disappeared? I'm not, I'm not too versed on the details of that, but I'm pretty sure his son or something had a computer that mysteriously disappeared that, would have, that contained a lot of records about these energy dealings. I'm sure Biden has earned all of his money legitimately, just like a lot of these people. You know, all these anonymous donations to party funds and members from lobbyist groups and, you know, these corporate pricks. You can't call out Putin for having a large amount of money when most high-up political leaders around the world have accumulated huge quantities of wealth themselves and have secret bank accounts and multiple accounts that may or may not be known by the IRS and the tax agencies. And who's to say that they earn all their money legitimately? I mean, you don't really know where half these lobbyists and these donations really got their money from anyway. It's all dirty money being paid to dirty people. So Biden really can't call out Putin when he is pretty much in a similar boat on a different sea. And besides bank accounts, a lot of these political leaders have investments or you know, insider knowledge on what investments to pick and choose, which ones they should dump before a stock market crash, which ones they should buy into when the price is about to plummet. A lot of people in higher places are start to become very fishy once you start digging. Not all of them, obviously, but there are a lot of political people who are dodgy as shit and you wouldn't trust with the milk money. According to the Kremlin, Mr. Putin earns around 8.6 million rubles a year. That is 149,000 Australian and about 100 and something thousand US. But according to experts, this is far from the true extent of his wealth. The Russian leader is rumored to own multiple homes, fleets of yachts, cars, and even secret presidential palaces worth hundreds of billions of dollars. So how many vehicles does Biden own? He's got a house in Martha's Vineyard, I'm pretty sure, or a house somewhere else. I'm sure he's, I'm sure he's got a couple of holiday homes scattered throughout the US and probably around the world, a lot of people do. I brought that up on a podcast a few years ago, talking about the tech billionaires buying up farms and properties in New Zealand so they can go hide if there is a global catastrophe and they want to survive. Builders are sworn to secrecy, so they allegedly may or may not be built underground. 
they buy up huge amounts of wealth everywhere. I mean, George Bush's George Bush has allegedly brought aquifers in South America to hoard water. So, so Putin's not the only one that has millions of dollars in secret bank accounts and multiple investments, presidential palaces, or many holiday homes scattered throughout the globe, or yachts. I think Bezos paid a two hundred million for a yacht. So, these people can't point their fingers too hard at Putin without him being pointed back at them. Former Russian government advisor Stanislav Beliskovy recently estimated, estimated his fortune to be worth around 70 billion US. While US hedge fund manager Bill Browder told the Washington Post it was more like 200 billion, 278.4 billion Australian. And that's a bit rich, the hedge fund manager claiming that someone has this outlandish fortune. I mean, these people are just as evil, hedge fund managers. They hoard boatloads of money. They don't do anything with it or help anyone else. It's just this obsession with getting rich and hoarding wealth. There are others who believe his true net worth could be even higher. It's hard to believe you could have more money than $200 billion. You could not live long enough to ever spend it. Top theories on how Putin made his money. A recent investigation by Forbes has uncovered three main theories into how Mr. Putin amassed his multi-billion dollar fortune. One theory relates to a Russian oligarch named Mikhail, I'm going to probably mispronounce this name, Khodorkovsky, who was once believed to be the richest man in Russia, with an estimated $15 billion fortune. In 2003, he was imprisoned on charges of fraud and tax evasion, accusations which he continually denied. It was widely accepted that Mr. Putin was behind Mr. Khodorkovsky's imprisonment, with his arrest coming just months after he criticized the Russian leader over state corruption during a meeting, Mr. Khodorkovsky's fortune was frozen and his hugely successful company was broken up. This is a pretty similar thing that's happening to Putin at the moment and a lot of oligarchs around Russia. Their assets are all being frozen by governments around the world. Mr. Browder believes Mr. Putin may have used his arrest to cut deals with all the other wealthy Russian oligarchs. And this is a quote by him. The deal was, you give me 50% of your wealth, and I'll let you keep the other 50%, Mr. Browder told Forbes. If you don't, he'll take 100% of your wealth and throw you in jail. Browder described Putin to the US Secretary Judiciary Committee in 2017 as one of the richest men in the world. I estimate that he has accumulated $200 billion of ill-gotten gains from these types of operations over his 17 years in power, Mr. Browder said. The second theory is that Mr. Putin grew his wealth by using his government influence to help his close friends and family earn money. Forbes suggests that those in his inner circle then offer him cash or stakes in the companies they acquire as a result of his help. Many of, Russian, many of the Russian leader's childhood friends and close allies have gained a vast amount of wealth over the years. You know, it's interesting. The plot thickens a little bit. Putin's a very interesting character. He um, yeah, kind of comes onto the political scene and pretty much just dominates it. So how does he help them once he's in the government? And how did he become so powerful in the government? Might have to do an episode on Putin. It's got my curiosity peaked. <clears throat> so if he helps his friends and family get rich through companies and investments and then they give him a cut of those profits you know, 10, 15, 20 years down the track... That'd have to be some pretty successful companies to amass that type of fortune. You'd have to have a lot of family and friends he had helped out. And that's a lot of covering stuff up in the government you'd have to do to not create a paper trail or 
get anyone to catch on to what you were doing. I'm not sure that is as practical as it sounds. The first theory, him ripping off the oligarchs, is probably more realistic. But at the same time, you've got to have balls to do that because these people don't fuck around when it comes to money. And, and once again, you have to be pretty politically powerful to be able to intimidate and rip off some of the richest men in Russia. So it kind of all comes back to him having a lot of governmental power. But how did he get that power? Is it, did he just rise through the ranks? Did he know the right people? Did he just take what he wanted? Or is there a, or is there a deeper, more sinister way he accumulated his money and got into politics? For example, his former son-in-law, Krili Shamalov, became a billionaire at 34 being after being allowed to borrow money from private banking company Grazprom Bank so he could buy 17% stake in the company Sibor from one of Mr. Putin's friends, Gennady Tmichinkov. Probably didn't pronounce any of those names right. Another one of Mr. Putin's friend, friends, Agdei Rottenbergham, received more than $7 billion in various state contracts in the lead-up to the 2014 Sochi Olympics. Yeah, interesting. The third and final theory is known as the bluster model, according to Forbes. This theory explores the possibilities that Mr. Putin actually doesn't have vast amounts of mysterious wealth and instead just likes people to think he does. That one would be probably the most outlandish theory, but could also be the correct one. That seems so over the top that it could actually be true. If that is true, he wouldn't be the first famous person in history to pretend to be super wealthy when they're actually not. There's many people around the world who pretend to be rich and famous who in reality don't have two cents to rub together. And it wouldn't be the first time someone's tried this tactic. Bloomberg columnist Leonard Bershitsky suggested that the Russian president actually has no need for personal wealth when he wields such power. Yeah, that's a good point. He does have the nuclear launch codes and he is the president of a very large country. He has the military on call. He has his own private army. He probably doesn't need super yachts and presidential palaces everywhere when he does have that type of power. And that's kind of, I think, more scary than him having vast amounts of wealth and being a president who wields power. I think him commanding such power without the money is more terrifying than if he was rich wielding the power. Because if you're rich, you can make anyone do whatever you want. You can pay people off. You can alleviate a lot of problems by having a lot of money. But if you aren't super wealthy and you got that power and you can still get your own way and you can still get people to do what you want, that is real unharnessed and terrifying power. He has the whole country at his beck and call, Brodchewski wrote in 2013. It is enough for Putin to snap his fingers and state-owned companies will cede assets to his friends at bargain basement prices. A whisper from him and the wealthy private businessman will chip in for the lavish refurbishment of a presidential residence. So that theory, I think, is by far the most logical and the one that makes the most sense to me. I mean, if you start fucking with oligarchs, there's a pretty good chance you're going to end up dead. The other one, the second theory does seem probably the most far-fetched. Getting his way into politics, then manipulating businesses and stock prices through the government to benefit his friends and family. I think this one makes the most sense, at least to me anyway. 
And like he said, like he has so much power, he can snap his fingers and state companies will give up their assets to his friends and family at bargain prices. If he just tells someone he needs a refurbishment on a presidential palace, a wealthy private businessman is all of a sudden obliged to chip in. That's the real question is how did he get the power in the first place? How did he become so powerful within the Russian government? Did he merely just work his way up or is there something else behind it? Russian tanks move over the border. Tensions in Europe are at boiling point after Russian President Vladimir Putin made a provocative, unexpected move which insiders believed he has escalated the threat to all-out war. After officially acknowledging two pro-Russian rebel Ukrainian territories, Mr. Putin immediately sent troops across the border for quote-unquote peacekeeping. Footage is already shown columns of equipment from Russia entering Ukraine, sparking fears war is imminent. Hans Christensen, the director of the Federation of American Scientists' Nuclear Information Project, took to Twitter this morning to share information that the Russian invasion appears to have started just hours after Vladimir Putin broke international law to recognize the two rebel Ukrainian regions, and he's obviously referring to the annexed regions of Ukraine. According to independent Russian news agency Interfax, eyewitnesses have claimed two columns of armored vehicles are on the territory of the Donetsk People's Republic, the DPR, and follow to the north and west of the Republic. Ukraine President Volodymyr Zelensky said in a tweet he is urgently preparing an address in response to the move and that he had been speaking with world leaders. It comes as Russia claimed to have five Ukrainian saboteurs who have been killed while attempting to breach the border and after US President Joe Biden and Mr. Putin yesterday agreed in principle, to participate in a summit over the Ukrainian crisis. On the proviso, Russia does not invade the nation. Around three-quarters of Russia's total force have reportedly been deployed against Ukraine, with almost 200,000 Russians and separatist forces positioned in the area near the border. And that was, what, seven, eight months ago that article was published, and we can see the war hasn't gone Russia's way. For all their equipment and manpower, it hasn't done much good. I think we'll leave it there for today. We'll pick it up in the next episode. We'll continue our epic look at the history of Russia and communism and the Soviet Union on the next episode. A big thank you to everyone who listened. An even bigger thank you if you listened to the end. If you like to support the True Thing, there's a couple of things you can do. Head on over to the Facebook page, follow and like it. Follow the new Truth Tank Instagram page. Rate and review the podcast. It helps the show grow and get found. Download the Truth Tank on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Google, Amazon, or wherever else you get your podcasts from. Tell people you think might like it. Help spread the word. Tell your friends, family, people at work. Help get the Truth Tank out there. And I'll be back in a couple of weeks with part two of our epic look at the history of communism and the Soviet Union. But until then, I'm the Tank, this is the truth, may the truth be with you.